I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller, coming to you from what's today a very gray and rainy Portland, Oregon. Thank you for listening to our show. This episode features one of the most fun and interesting interviews I've done for this podcast. Recorded in my office just before the winter break, I spoke with one of my colleagues in the Hatfield School of Government who I only recently met, despite our offices being only one floor apart. Last November, we were members of a panel discussion about promoting civic engagement in a time of political polarization, and she said a number of things that got me to rethink some of my long-held views about what needed to happen to move forward into a healthier and more productive era of democratic politics. I knew right away I had to invite her for an interview. I'm happy to bring you Wendy Willis, a person deeply involved in promoting civic engagement, particularly among marginalized groups. Wendy is the founding director of Oregon's Kitchen Table, a statewide civic engagement program working to give every Oregonian an opportunity to participate in the political decisions that affect their lives and communities. She is also the director of civic engagement at Portland State University's National Policy Consensus Center and the executive director of the national nonprofit Kitchen Table Democracy. In addition to that, she's a poet and a really delightful and wonderful person. We had a fantastic, quite far-ranging conversation. Here it is. Let's just start in a very standard way. Why don't you tell me what it is that you currently do and how you got into that? What I do is easy. The how I got there is more of a mystery. But, um, well, that's the more interesting part. <laughs> so um, I run a statewide community engagement program called Oregon's Kitchen Table. It's on the fifth floor of your building, so just downstairs from you. We're housed in the National Policy Consensus Center, and so we work with several other programs there we work in tiny little jurisdictions, and we work statewide on um, getting Oregonians' voices into public decisions, and especially Oregonians that their voices have been excluded, there's big barriers to participation, so work with organizers, translators, interpreters, culturally specific facilitators to you know, really work with folks to hear what they have to say about the decisions that you know, affect all of us. All right, so you're in the civic engagement and inclusion business, yes. if I can yeah. put it that way. <laughs> the, yes. The story of how you got there, did you grow up in a political family? Did you have a catalyzing event that made you political? Did, was it a slow evolution? Was there, what, what was it that sort of made you a person with a political awareness and a desire to go into this kind of engagement work? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I did I did grow up what I would call a political family in the sense that we were, you know, really serious about being community members and being, you know, had felt our obligations to the community. And so, 
in the sense that that's part of what democratic practices are and what democratic culture is. It was sort of deeply ingrained that we would be full participants in the community that we lived in. Um, and I would, you know, my grandmother is one of seven, and, um, and that family was very present to us. Like my grandmother, her sisters, like my cousins, my um, aunts and uncles, and you know, then of course my parents and my sister and all of that. And that, you know, that's a, that's a political unit too. Right? It's a community. Yeah. So you, you grew up in an extended family <laughs> that gave you a direct sense of community. Yeah. And that's not necessarily true for... I grew up in a standard American nuclear family where this, the word community was not even something that I felt until I think I went to college. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And that there's a difference between friendships and community. And, you know, sort of, um, you know, how I think about it is, you know, communities, you're, 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 they're in your circle of care whether you actually like them or not. And um, I mean, what this is this is a little off color, but you know what I say to my kids about community is like you take them a, a lasagna, whether you think they're an asshole or not. You are obligated to them, and you care for them. Whether yeah. it's not a feeling, it's a and your and your feelings can ebb and flow in terms of strength. Yeah. Of, you know, you could be angry at somebody, and then you could not be angry at them for long periods of time. So I think it's a good way to distinguish between a collection of people and a community, yeah. uh, or even friend groups and people that you feel deeply connected to, whatever your mood or right. whatever their politics. So you grew up in, not necessarily a political family, but really in a community that was saturated with a sense of community. True. And my and we, the, we had a secondary community in addition to our family, which was my dad taught at the same high school, you know, for, he went to that high school and he taught there for 32 years. My sister works there now, and that community also was very interconnected, generationally interconnected, and sort of continues to be, really. Okay, so how did you get from there, which sounds like a fantastic start for what <laughs> yeah, you do yeah. from an early age. How did you, what was the next step? Just let's go through the chronological timeline, yeah. you know, quickly if you want. But what was, you know, college, first work, what were, how did you get from the upbringing to where you are now? Well, I went to Malamet for undergraduate because I went there for Girl State and I'd spent the night there. So it was sort of like a place that one could go because I knew, you know, I knew where the dorms were. And it turned out, of course, that Willamette's very, you know, opened tons of doors politically, civically. I, you know, had a, another very deep community experience there. I worked for State Senator Jim Hill because he was right across the street. So I was able to work for him while I was in, in college. I was really involved in the anti-apartheid movement, the divestment, divestment movement at Willamette. So there was a lot of practice, like just, I just got a lot of citizenship practice. And my senior thesis was from a Tocqueville sem seminar. So I just, just sort of followed that pathway. But meanwhile, I was writing poems and, you know, deeply engaged in literature. And but so, you weren't just a political nerd. Yeah. You were, well, I was, but, but not just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? you know, you, yeah. you might've been a political nerd, but in addition, <laughs> yeah. you, you're a poet, yeah. you're a creative person. I assume that you had friendships with people who weren't just, you know, working with you in your on your De Tocqueville work yeah, or your community yeah. work. So you had a rich life, but a big part of it was being embedded in these engaged activities. Yeah. So it sounds like a, cont a continuity for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, it is a continuity. And then I went to law school and and had a great. I loved. Law, I like school. I'm a school person, so I was in D.C. So the great thing about being in D.C. is I went to law school there. But D.C. there's so much free art, so I was just consuming art because uh, because it was available to me both visual art and writers who would come through town and 
I, I went to college in DC too, and every time I go to a city where you have to pay to go into museums, it makes me angry because I got so used to you just I walking on the street like, okay, I think I'll go into the art yeah. museum right now. I don't want to get off in too much of a tangent, but the difference between free and paid art is is extraordinary, especially at that age, right, where you just don't have the resources. Now I have a question for you about law school. Law school, in my mind, is not a place that I would refer to with the word community. Was it shocking to you what it was like in law school? Did you find ways to create community, even in this kind of competitive and very highly structured, I call it an intellectual boot camp, when yeah. students of mine are asking whether they should go to law school or not. What was your experience of law school like, and how did it connect with or differ from things you'd experienced before that? It differed a lot. I mean, there were similarities because I liked studying. So that was kind of a consistent, right? Like, I, you know, I could just, I could just bury my nose and... I told myself I didn't have to take one bar class if I didn't want to. Like, maybe I would practice, maybe I wouldn't. And so it was very, I was able to follow my interests in a way that a lot of folks, I think, who feel a lot of pressure around law school didn't. I had the West Coast kid goes to the East Coast shock. Like, uh-huh. you know, people who went to boarding school and all the, you know, sort of all the, the ranking systems that were super invisible to me but that were really present um, inside, you know, inside a law school like that. So, I, you know, I learned a lot. I found a nest, of course, of, of friends, and, you know, we created a space where we could really take care of each other, and, and that's what we did. But meanwhile, I just learned a ton. Right, so it sounds like you brought sort of your ability to create, I, I like the term nest, you, know, yeah. you, you, you built a nest for yourself uh, inside of this competitive, I would say quite individualistic and often depersonalized environment, law school, and on the East Coast. I grew up in New Jersey, so I had the opposite. When I came out to the West Coast, I was just like, oh my, people can treat each other this way? (laughs) It felt like a breath of fresh air. So you had the opposite where you experienced the shock of, oh no, people can treat each other this way? But you found a way to bring your experience and your community sense into the life that you had so that you could not just get crushed by East Coast Law School competition. Yeah, that's more or less the, the case. So. And this was not something I was planning on asking you, yeah. but I'm a guy who grew up in a nuclear family and on the East Coast and in a very sort of, I would say, individualist, separate environment where the word community was a word I understood. I knew it as a dictionary definition, but I didn't know it as any kind of value. How do you take people like me and make them more like people like you? Who, who grew up in this, who yeah. have a sense of it, who feel the idea of reciprocity as just part of what it means to be connected to other human beings. Yeah. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you get people to get there from, from where I started? Yeah, that's a, really, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, I mean, I think people have more or less yearning for it, right? Like, and so I think people will come to that moment when they're ready for it, and maybe they'll never really want to be that enmeshed in a community. And I'm never gonna try to persuade anyone that that's a way to live. Like, if you're going to be in a community, the reciprocity is required of you, right? So you have to be ready to do it. What if you want to, but you don't have the skill set? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, we do live in a hyper-individual society, and it's often very Mm anti-authoritarian. In fact, it could be considered to be anti-communitarian, yet, if there is this yearning in a lot of people and there essentially there's there's no nourishment in the yeah. broader American political culture, there's a gap there. Yeah. And I and I'm assuming that part of what your work is now is to try to fill in that gap. I'm just trying to get something personal out of this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well I mean one of the things that we 
are learning, of course, you know, because we're learning all the time on how to do more than one thing at a time. And, and so, of course, there's input into public decisions, which is a really significant thing. But, but to also create a space in which people have, you know, they experience joy, they experience connection, they experience purpose, and all of those things, then together that shared enterprise does start to create a community. And, you know, the things that I think we see, I, one of the, we just did a couple of job searches and every time we asked people, tell us about a time where you felt like you belonged and what were the conditions under which you felt that, with the idea that we want folks who know how to help other people feel like they belong. And many, many people were talking about not, ha- you know, the shared enterprise of creating something together. In my early community engagement work, what I really wanted to do was create a great experience for everyone and sort of be the host. And I realized that that was, that was wrong, that it has to be co-created and that the experience has to be co-created. And it may be a little bit shabbier and it may be, it may be a little like there may be a little bit of chaos, but that chaos and struggling together and that, that really starts to create something that's a space that you've built together. That rips at my perfectionist heart, the idea yes. of you using words like shabby. <laughs> no. It's like it's hard because that's an uncomfortable feeling yeah. for somebody who, you know, I'm a professor, I create the experience of the classroom and when you say co-create, it's like, well, I'm co-creating with my students, but really they're not really. What you're saying sounds both exciting and frightening. It is. Oh, it is. It is both. It's both those things, and yet that's the conditions under which, if we're gonna, if we're gonna be in community, and we have to be able to tolerate annoyance, boredom, confusion, uncertainty, all right. the things that control we don't freaks want. beware <laughs> yes, that you're yeah. entering a territory where you might have to soften around that. So, yeah. so that would be you know, and I'm not necessarily a control freak, but I have control freak tendencies. Again, I'm asking for guidance on how to become a more community-minded yeah. person, and then I'm already learning a ton. Like, okay, so your control freak side maybe has to be, get checked at the door. Yeah, I love the idea of co-creating because I'm a creative person, but to but to co-create as opposed to create yeah. is a different thing. It is. Do, do you find that when people get involved in these engagement activities that there's an upward spiral where the good feeling, the sense of belonging, the sense of richness that you get from co-creating with people has an upward spiral or is it always a slog? No, no. I mean, it definitely has an upward spiral, but it also creates resilience, right? So when eventually there is a rift, because there will be, because humans, right, that there's just resiliency around that rift. So it's not like it's like an upward spiral toward angels and white light. It's an upward spiral in the sense of like, oh, I can, I can live through this conflict, or I can, I'm bored out of my head right now because I've heard this story for the 50th time, but I understand the, I understand the reason for it being that you know, telling the story collectively is something that we do to create culture. That it just becomes less about like my own personal experience, and I think there's a way in which urban life, like. When I first moved to Portland, I couldn't understand why no one ever stopped by. Like, the stopping by culture, it just seemed really strange. And I think you can you're, you can always be tallying better offers, right? Right. Like, like how can I maximize my experience? And it's not part of the culture. Anyway, people, if, if someone showed up at your door, you'd be like, why are you here? <laughs> Did someone die? What's going on? Yeah. Do, you need a, do you need a lift to the airport? Yeah. Right? They would, you, you would be very functional about it. Yeah. It's interesting because I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey, and we did not, while there was a lot of proximity, we did not, there was no stopping by culture. Yeah. But even right when you said that, I thought, but popular culture, most of the sitcoms that I yeah. watched as a kid involved 
dropping by. Yeah. And the sitcoms, my, my, my kids both loved Friends and, and Seinfeld, these 90s sitcoms. Yeah. And there was nothing but dropping by <laughs> yes. in those. And yet we don't live in a culture where that happens broadly. So it's right. just, this is the first time I really noticed, like, oh, what a, what a disjuncture between popular culture representations of friendship yeah. and the, the lived experience. So yeah. really, I'm not usually looking to popular culture for models of behavior. <laughs> yeah. So this is an interesting and surprising one for me. Well, and that it has a kind of, like, there's a, there's a desire for it underneath of that, right? Like this idea that, that you're enmeshed with people, in so much so that you can change your plans because they showed up at your door. I mean, in some ways, the thing that it's really counter to is it's counter to the idea of creating our own, you know, bubble of one. Like, like our preferences are so catered to by, by, the, you know, by, by capitalism, really. And so it just becomes... So we become narrower and narrower. Both our identities and our heart become so much, so narrowed by that. Like the only that I thing I can imagine right now is what what I'm going to experience. Pothole Problem Podcast is supported in part by the Center for Public Service, a valued community member in the Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University. The Center for Public Service provides individuals, public sector organizations, and nonprofits with access to the intellectual resources and practical experiences of the Hatfield School to help improve governance, civic capacity, and public management locally, regionally, nationally, and around the globe. The Center supports public service organizations with consulting services and applied research in a variety of areas, from human resources and sustainable development to disaster preparedness and cultural communication. The Center has multiple subunits, including the Institute for Tribal Government, the Nonprofit Institute, and the Initiative for Community and Disaster Resilience. The Center also develops the knowledge and skills of present and future public service leaders through student engagement, professional development, and public service fellowships. The center offers non-credit courses and professional certificates and hosts seminars, panels, webinars, and conferences. To find out more about the Center for Public Service, go to pdx.edu and search for Center for Public Service. Wendy and I got sidetracked a little bit talking about how easy it has become to isolate ourselves from other people, particularly since the pandemic, and how challenging it is to get people to engage with others, given how difficult it can be to make collective choices even about simple things, like what movie to go see with a small group of friends, or what kind of restaurant to go to. Our conversation picks up here. How do you drag people away from DoorDash and Netflix and into the public forum? Well, I mean, the people that I'm most worried about and, and like that I center in our work that level of choice is not often available to them. I mean, and there's so much excitement about like being part of the deci- being part of a decision. You know, people who are refugees from countries where they were persecuted, and people who have never been asked before what they think about water or forests or school. And um, it's a. I mean, it's not. I'm not asking them to come to City Hall, but I mean, you know, going to them and saying, hey. While you sit here after your um, vaccine, can I talk with you about you know what you want for, for your community? Right. Sitting down next to them, and you know people want to talk about it. They want to talk about what they want. Right. So you're working with populations of people that have been marginalized by the world, not the self-marginalized, which is what we were just talking about a second ago. So there's a different set of challenges. Yeah, uh, and and, the, and for, I mean I, we want to hear from everyone 
There is so much satisfaction in collective action. There really is, if we can get over ourselves about being bored or annoyed or not immediately gratified. Like, there is a different level of satisfaction. Like, I'm sure you know, like, it's the difference between reading a novel and reading a tweet. Like, just the satisfaction of, like, having sunk deep into something. And, you know, it's even the boredom... I remember the first time that I discovered that boredom wasn't horrible. Because yeah. I grew up thinking that boredom was a mistake, and it yeah. was an argument that I was doing something wrong. And the first time that I discovered that boredom was actually an okay thing was when my kids were in elementary school, and I would sit in the smelly, overheated auditorium for two hours, waiting for my kid to say five words, yeah. and... Being just, I mean, if you're not bored out of your skull at a second grade play, <laughs> then I don't know, that, then you're either a hero or an idiot. I don't know which yeah. it is, you're, or both. Yeah. But that was, I was like, I am being a good father. Yeah. And I'm being a good member of this community to sit here and instead of saying, well, you shouldn't be bored because you love these kids and you love these teachers and you love this school, like, no, acknowledge you're bored, but you're going to do it. Yeah. And you're not going to zip out the door as soon as you possibly can. You're not going to keep your eye on your phone. For me, that was my very first lesson in the idea that boredom wasn't an argument that you were doing something wrong. It was, in fact, a skill to possess, yeah. to sit with it. If I'd never had kids, I don't think I would have ever gotten to that place. Uh, yeah. I don't think that there's anything else in my life where if I'd been bored, I would have stuck it out. Yeah. That's not any kind of training that I ever received mm-hmm. or that any cultural message ever is given. So that's just one of those skills that I luckily fell into as a parent of small but children. I mean, I, I, I might challenge you on that. Like, you can't tell me novel writing does not have its moments of boredom. It, Draft five. I, well, <laughs> you know, it's funny because it's, maybe it's just that when you're writing novels, there's a, there's a godlike control over the universe you've created. <laughs> yeah. So how, you know, can God ever really be bored <laughs> yeah. with his or her universe? So, you know, it's, the, I've done things that required attention and focus and concentration, yeah. but to, to actually sit and know that for the next hour and 45 minutes, you can't get up out of this folding chair. It's hot and smells weird, <laughs> yeah. and you're just—it's not that engaging. That's what, I had never experienced anything quite, I would say, so painful. Yeah. As that, maybe there were tasks, you know, cleaning the bathroom when I was a yeah. kid or mowing the lawn. Yeah, sure, there was moderate amounts of boredom, but it was—it was a minor feeling. Yeah. Uh, but you're—you're you're right. It's—it's—it it is good to be able to dig into one's own emotional experience and say, okay, this is not something I've never done before. Mm-hmm. It just didn't. It felt different to me. Well, I mean, just to, it sounds like it felt different because it was actually driven by others. Mm-hmm. And which is, that is exercising that muscle. It's like my inner life and my outer circumstances are actually being heavily influenced by other people. Right. I never would have chosen to be in that elementary school auditorium if it weren't for the people around me having yeah. created it and the expectations. Yes. Yeah, so that, that is, and that is community. Yeah. And, and that is, when my kids were in elementary school, I think that was probably also maybe the first time when I felt the real power of community, the importance yeah. of it, because I saw the good side of it. Yeah. And then that allowed me to say, I'm not going to use the word bad side of it, yeah. but that allowed me to have to face the uncomfortable side of it, yeah. which was, there were, and there were many, you know, I, I uh, was involved, I chaperoned a lot of trips, and I was involved in raising money for the school's foundation. Yeah. Lots of boredom. Yes. <laughs> Lots of tedious meetings yes. and doing things that were not particularly interesting. Uh, and I am deeply grateful for that experience. Yeah. 
if I had not had kids and, and gone through that, I would be missing a set of skills. Yeah. So, you, so it, you know, you're, you're just pointing out, too, that we can draw on things that aren't necessarily political. Yeah. That uh, we have, we all have certain muscles that whether they're very strong or not, that we can work on and exercise in, in ways that will help us be more engaged, better community members, or just able to be in community at all. Well, and it feels to me like deepening our sense of what democracy is, right? Like, you've used several examples that are democratic acts. I mean, whether it's like negotiating with your friends to go to the movies or if it's, you know, trying to decide how you're going to raise money and for what. And like, there's so much, you know, civic, the underpinning of democracy is all in that. Right. Democracy is not just politics. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, your organization is called Kitchen Table. Yeah. And so that for some political nerds, that connotes kitchen table issues, yeah. like economic issues. Yeah. But I, I'm sensing that that title means a different thing to you. Can you just talk a little bit about what Kitchen Table means to you in terms of how that connects with democracy? When we were building the program, we did a bunch of focus groups with people, actually. And I really wanted to have a metaphor. I, w- I wanted a metaphoric title. I did not want some kind of bureaucratic title. And That's the poet in you. <laughs> yeah. And I just think it just is a way in which we can communicate across difference, right? Because it's a feeling, not a and not an idea. And so lots of people resonated with the idea that the kitchen table is where you discuss things, the kitchen table is where you connect with people. I liked the, the joke inside of it that you could sit, you can participate online from your own kitchen table so that... It was a very multicultural set of conversations. It, it was one of the few that really resonated for folks. Even, even I had a, there was a graduate student here at PSU who said, I don't have a kitchen table, but now I want one. And so I really like the idea of, of that metaphor. So it has an echo of kitchen table issues, but it also has the idea of, like, that's where we make decisions together. It's kind of a cliche that, that every party ends up happening in the kitchen. Yeah, you right. Know? So there's, there's good feeling about that. I, I want to just stop for a little sidebar here is, uh, because the, you mentioned focus group. Yeah. And one of the things I think people think about focus groups is they think focus groups are a tool of manipulation yeah. by marketers and campaigners right. to try to figure out how best to resonate with people so they can manipulate them. Yeah. This is a great example of using a focus group to actually just try to do something as effectively as possible and not to manipulate. And so yeah. I, I just want to note And not that, to step into not to step into it with somebody, right? Like using a metaphor, metaphors are so culturally specific that I really didn't want to use a metaphor that like that graded against graded against people. Right, because that you know, that's another good use of focus groups. <laughs> yeah. If you if you're if you're inclusion minded you don't necessarily know what that means to other people. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you know what your experience is, and you can imagine. It was like, you know, I didn't grow up in a black family. I yeah. didn't grow up in a, uh, an Asian family. I, I grew up in a white American family, and so I could try to imagine what other families were like, but without... So focus groups, I just... I'm, I'm kind of... This is my pitch to, for people to... If they have a knee-jerk reaction against hearing that yeah. phrase, which I know a lot of my students and people out in the public... <laughs> Just think it's a tool of manipulation. Yeah. Realize that there are every tool is a tool that could be used for good purposes or for problematic purposes. Yeah, for sure. So I'm glad to hear that, that that's something that you did. Well, um, and Dean Larry Wallach from this college actually conducted them for me. I mean, I just got to listen, which was great. I do want to mention, though, just for your listeners, there's a poem called Perhaps the World Ends Here, which is by the poet Joy Harjo, who was the poet laureate of the United States until relatively recently, that really talks about all that happens at a kitchen table. And I probably read that poem hundreds of times to people at our events. For me, that really became an anthem, sort of. 
we could do these things together here. And the suffering, the joy, the decision-making, like, it's all there. I thought it would be a good idea to play the poem at this point, to let you hear exactly what Wendy is talking about. Here's Perhaps the World Ends Here by Joy Harjo. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table we gossip, recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor, falling-down selves and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours, and we, we actually did have about an hour conversation before we started yeah. our interview today. I do want to get to the question I ask all my guests, and to hear your perspective on this, and this question is, as listeners are familiar with, what's something that used to outrage you, and no longer does, and what brought about the change? You know, I've heard, I've heard you ask people this question, and I mean, there are things that used to outrage me, but what I, I think, you know, in advanced age, um, it's really not whether it outrages me initially, but whether like, whether I continue to be outraged and what the reason for that is. I very, my, uh, my spiritual practice is to not be so judgmental about everything because there are times when I like come to a judgment and I'm like, why? Like, why am I judging that person? Why am I judging that thing? So I'm very much trying to, get, to extend the period of time from having an experience to categorizing it to judging it. And I think that that feeling of outrage, if you examine it, sometimes it's productive outrage, right? Like, we need to stop killing children. This is an injustice. This is, this is harming people. But sometimes it's just a tr- outrage that's triggered by something that's fleeting, that it's out of boredom, it's out of the desire to um, enjoy some feeling of superiority. So I think there's a way in which... I might feel the outrage, but I really want to examine what's the source of it and whether like whether it's earned or whether it's just a 
You know, it's just a feeling that then needs to be excused. Yeah, and I, and I like that. The <laughs> distinction I use that helps keep that straight for me is the difference between reacting and responding. Yeah, right. Reactivity is what produces these strong yeah. immediate emotions. And when you respond, you reflect and think about it. It's pretty much you've described it beautifully. And it doesn't mean you're not going to have a powerful emotion at the end of a response and a reflective period. It's just that now you actually understand why you should be outraged or why you should be angry. And, I, and you gave a great example. of Yeah, I mean, the world is full of terrible things. If you can get past that reactive moment where you're just, one, angry, disgusted, overwhelmed but maybe yeah. by the enormity of it all so that you feel despondent, right, instead yeah. of outraged, get past that and say, okay, how do I really feel? It's not about getting rid of feelings. Yeah. For me, it's about creating that space of time between yeah. the initial response. So I, I, I like that. For me, reactive versus responsive or reflective yeah. is the distinction that helps me. I think outrage is super important, actually, in lots of conditions. But it also, we have a really narrow definition of political emotion, and that's one of the permissible political emotions. And so we go to it in places where you know, maybe what we really, really is called for is collective grief. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's shame. Or maybe it's confusion. And, you know, all of those, we, it all just becomes a mishmash of, like, black cloud outrage, this propulsive outrage. That's fantastic. We need to expand our emotional vocabulary for yeah. how we feel about things and not necessarily lump all of our hard feelings yeah. under one category of outrage because outrage is often not very productive at all. Right. I like that you mentioned collective grief because grieving is a process that's actually it's challenging. It's really hard to grieve and we certainly, again, in our culture, we don't get taught how to right. grieve. That's right. we, don't, we don't get taught how to grieve even actual dead people, much less how to grieve the loss of you know collective goals or the loss of relationships or the loss of, of communities or yeah. you know the loss of a job. So even just that one emotion that you mentioned, grief, we need to add it to our vocabulary and then we need to train ourselves in, in being able to do it effectively. And to not just do it effectively individually, but to do it effectively together. And I think that certain emotions are actually better suited to collective action. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. anger is a very solitary emotion. Yeah. Grief is a more collective emotion. Shame yeah. is an interesting one because I, I don't like the word shame because I think shame is, a, is, is often a tool of manipulation. But like every tool, it could have a positive use. And shame is a collective, maybe an emotion you could feel individually, but it, feeling it collectively, would it would look different, I think. Yeah. And, I mean, you can like it or not like it, but it is, exists. And so recognizing it and naming it and saying... This is actually shame, but because I hate feeling ashamed, I'm going to go to outrage, right? Right. There's a certain burst of joy that comes from being appropriately outraged. <laughs> well, yeah. escaping shame, right? Yeah, like the especially joy. if you're escaping shame. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think the other, you know, the other thing to think about shame is when we're, th- I think we realized it in the most recent, you know, era of national politics is how much our system is held together by norms, and shame is one of the one of the ways in which those norms are enforced. And when shame is gone, it's really difficult to enforce informal norms. And so I think it's a very, it's a really complex emotion and, and tool. So I think it's more than just manipulation. It's, 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 com- it's really um, interesting and complex. Right. That re- reminds me of this famous moment from the McCarthy hearings back in the 1950s where the counsel for the Department of Defense said, finally, sir, do you have no shame? Yeah. And using shame against uh, Senator McCarthy is a positive 
act yeah. of norm maintenance. Yeah. That's good. You know, Wendy, uh, we're, we're, we're out of time. Thank but, you so uh, much for having me. I know that we could talk about a lot of stuff, and you've definitely given me a lot to think about. I feel like I'm just going to have to say, you're going to need to be back on the show. Okay? <laughs> well, it was great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's it for episode 43. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Pothole Problem podcast. And keep your eye on future episodes. Our next interview is with former city commissioner Joanne Hardesty. I hope to have you back right here for episode 44. In the meanwhile, if you haven't heard our back catalog of episodes, you can get them at the potholeproblempodcast.com or just scroll back up to the beginning of the list in whatever podcast software you're using. I'm Jack Miller, and I want to thank you as always for listening to this show.